I think what happens with leaders is is we make the mistake of trying to give more and more insight to somebody who's unmotivated to change. Until you've carried the weight of ministry, you really have no idea the pressure that leaders are under. And I don't just mean pastors, I mean volunteers as well. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, we're not always going to agree, and that's okay, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. Our guest today is Steve Cuss. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm glad we got to connect. Thanks for saying yes. So today on the show... We're going into an interesting topic, but before we dive into it, Steve, would you mind giving our listeners a little bit about who you are, where you are, and some of the work that you do? Yeah, sure. Yep. I uh, I live in the Denver, Colorado area, just under Boulder, beautiful part of the country in America here. I was born and raised in Western Australia, uh, grew up unchurched, and uh, came into the church and came into uh, what I would describe as a relationship with God when I was a teenager, and it was um, it was life changing for me. And uh, the short story is, I moved to the the America to uh, do theology studies. Ended up staying, and um, had some unique experiences when I was younger, uh, basically around trauma and hospice chaplaincy, which was my first job out of college. And then uh, that became the basis of a book I wrote a couple of years ago called Managing Leadership Anxiety, where I mostly help leaders and some parents uh, sort out what's going on under the surface in them and how it gets in the way of their ability to connect to people. It's fascinating. And, and I think I can agree for all of our listeners. Thank you for doing that work. I think more people uh, need people like you doing work like that. So thank you so much. And it does connect to the topic that we're going to talk about today. We're talking about criticism. Uh, you know, not a day goes by where something in our lives or our news feeds is, isn't being critiqued or, or being commented on and, or pulled apart in some fashion. Uh, so for the sake of our conversation, Steve, when we say critique or criticism, what does that mean? Well, yeah, so criticism is obviously a big word. And uh, in, in my framework of it, I think it has two components. It has an internal component, which would be the story you tell yourself. Um, and, you know, every one of us, we do kind of have this like little inner narrator that makes meaning out of our experiences. And for most of us, I would say uh, it's a pretty harsh narrator. So particularly when we don't live up to our own standards, um, then our inner critic kicks in. So when I think of criticism, I often first think of the inner critic and trying to help people locate it. And, and, and really, um, I, use, I use a metaphor from the old movie Office Space uh, where Milton keeps showing up to work even though he, they stopped paying him. And I would say, look, your inner critic's going to keep showing up to work, but you don't have to give it the corner office. You know, you can tuck it in the basement. You can stop paying it. Uh, so that would be one aspect. And then, you know, for me at least, where my mind goes next for sure is church leadership. And especially this last year, it's just been an onslaught of criticism for leaders. I, I think 
you know, church leaders, we've always had to deal with criticism, but uh, this year it, it probably multiplied, I know in my life, probably four or five fold, I guess. Um, and as I talked to ch- ch- church leaders, probably the same. And that gets interesting because I, I think church is unique in that when you go to it, you start to believe you know how to lead it. Um, and so you then feel very free to tell the leaders what they are or aren't doing. And of course, we're also in an era where so many church leaders are getting caught out for corruption, bullying, domineering. And so I think there's a high mistrust of church leaders. And so I think that's made it tougher to, yeah. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And I do want to come back to that idea. But you had said something earlier about the inner critic. Where does that come from? You know, is that is that something that we're all just sort of born with and, and we sort of beat ourselves up every once in a while because of our mistakes? Or is that something that, that sort of gets thrust upon us based on our circumstances? Yeah, actually, I don't think we are born with an inner critic. I, I think it shows up early in our life when we suddenly discover that we're not enough. Uh, what, you know, like in my case, you know, I was always the last picked on the sports teams. I love sports and thought I was good at them until I tried out for a team. So, you know, for some, it's, it's the gap between the way you see yourself and the way you actually are. For some, the inner critic is profoundly connected to parents and the message that parents, you know, I just can't, you know, I was raised by good parents. I can't believe some of the messages that some parents send their kids. So I don't think we're born with it. I think we pick it up early. I think, um, I think it's actually a protective device to protect us against uh, a world that we don't think we're safe in. Then over time, it just gets really sophisticated. It becomes like a constant companion. I I believe as a follower of Jesus, I believe there's a real theological component. I think, um, I think our inner critic speaks up anytime we are trying to be God. So the, the general themes of your inner critic are um, perfection. If you don't do something perfectly, um, always being there for people, always knowing the answer. Uh, some of these things that are really God's attributes. And I think when the human being tries to be like God, uh, we fail because we can't do it. And then our inner critic is trying to get us to be perfect and all knowing and all loving. So what I try to coach people to do is be exactly human sized. Like God, God is not surprised when we're human. Uh, We're surprised. And I think it's because human beings are always trying to be in control. We, we want to be the center. And I think that's what makes us anxious. So, you know, a lot of my work is just trying to help people actually, honestly, follow God and worship God and give up trying to be like God. And, and I find it most rife in the church, honestly, it's, it's church people. Even a lot of our publishing uses language about being like Christ. And I think it's a, a really dangerous path of legalism, honestly. Yeah, it's great insight. And now jumping back to to the criticism within the church, you had said, you know, a lot of that criticism comes from people who think that they can be leading it. When it comes to actual church leaders, when it comes to people who are who are pastors or, or, or ministry heads or things like that, a lot of people do give that type of criticism because of preferences, because of doing things that they personally probably wouldn't do. Is that 
is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, like we all have preferences, but is it is it always beneficial to voice them? You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to make a blanket answer to that. I, I know in my life, the people who are shouldering the weight of ministry, whether they're paid or volunteer, have the most um, permission to give me preference feedback. I think it's dangerous if, if a leader is not surrounded by people who are giving criticism. So I think criticism is very healthy. The problem is when people are uninvolved, you, you know, most pastors I know could probably out-criticize their own performance against the critic. Like, you know, a critic will come and say, hey, you should have done it this way. And most leaders I know are like, yeah, like you don't have to tell me. I'm very aware of my imperfections, um, particularly over this last year. Church leaders have simply had to rebuild church from scratch in a moment's notice, um, had, have had to suddenly deal with what we thought was a health crisis that very quickly became, I think, stupidly a political crisis. And so now health has been politicized. It's, it's ridiculous. So, so, so I think criticism can be help, healthy, but, you know, I had a guy come up a few weeks ago. He was brand new to the church and right out of the gate, he comes up after the sermon to meet me, meet the pastor. And right out of the gate, he's asking me how I like to receive my criticism because he had some for me. And I, I looked at him, I, I said, I don't want to hear it at all. Like, like, first of all, decide if this is your church home. And secondly, find a place to roll up your sleeves and serve. Give it about a year. And then let's talk, you know, like, like, so, so for the people who are, are carrying the weight of ministry, I think we should have all the room in the world to hear their feedback because they may see our blind spots. They, you know, I, I think ministry should be collaborative, but it's, it's the people who are not involved and have not gotten into the nuance of the decision. Those are the folks I think they should just take a breath and, and probably bite their tongue. Which then brings up another question. You know, how can you tell when someone or something merits the act of a critique and when it's just complaining? You know, your example was shocking, quite honestly. Yeah. Um, but it, it but was it happens. shocking to me, too. And it was shocking <laughs> to him when I told him he was very surprised that I didn't want to hear it. He was hoping I would say, well, I prefer emails, you know, <laughs> like, sure. no, just, just don't give me anything. And unfortunately, it just happens all the time. Um but but how can you tell the difference when somebody genuinely has your back and they do see that blind spot and when it's just simply, hey, this isn't what I would have done? Look, I, I actually don't think it's that hard to tell. You know, so like somebody wants to meet with me, we sit down and uh, they say, hey, it would help me to understand why you made this decision. And I share why. And let's just play it out. They might say something like, well, you could have done it this way. And uh, I, I would happily say, you know what? That's actually the better way to do it. You're right. That would have been the better way. But that person, I don't know. It's, it's the posture. Like that would be one option. And another option would be if I say, yeah, but here's why we did it this way. Sometimes when they don't have the insight you have, they'll come around and they'll say, oh, I understand. Thanks for meeting with me. Other times they'll say, well, you know what? I appreciate that you met with me. I disagree, but no problem. Those, those people I'll meet with all day. You know, that's, those are what I would describe as healthy, normal people. It's the people that I think what happens with leaders is, is we, 
make the mistake of trying to give more and more insight to somebody who's unmotivated to change. And that's what I'm looking for. Is, is the person moving toward me? Are they expecting a reasonable thing out of me? Um, you can normally tell that within a meeting or two. And, and, and again, to me, what are they leading? What are they carrying? Um, if they're not leading or carrying something, they don't necessarily know what it's like. Uh, and, and the hardest critic I'll say is the one that's uninvolved and technically correct. There's always those people too. Like they're not wrong. They're just, it's kind of a cheap shot because they've, they've not had to sweat it out. They've not put in the hours and the agony. Um, they can still be right. And I'm not sure I want to hear from them because until you've carried the weight of ministry, you really have no idea the pressure that leaders are under. And I don't just mean pastors, I mean volunteers as well. And I think there's degrees to the criticism. You had mentioned before that we seek scandal after scandal and you know, it's, it's, it's probably more strange at this point when the church isn't in the headlines, uh, as opposed to, you know, 20, 30 years ago, maybe we were just better at hiding it. But those types of critiques, those types of concerns usually don't come from within the house, at least in my experience. You know, church members sort of see things in, in the media as far as church scandal, and they go, my, that's sad. But the, the more critical, the more analytical approaches to the criticism are coming from people who would not necessarily identify as as Christians. Would you say that that's accurate or is that off? I think we're talking about a complex topic. And so I, I generally uh, resist broad brush statements. Sure. I, I think ministry attracts narcissism. And I think ministry also breeds narcissism. So I think the kind of person who needs to be the center of attention wants to tell people what to do is attracted to ministry at a higher than normal percentage of numbers. There's been studies on this. I've got people I would consider very dear friends who, who have spent most of their professional life on this very topic. Therefore, narcissism plus spiritual authority, I think is absolutely deadly and toxic. So what I'm finding is a lot of church people are exposing those kinds of leaders. So I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of healthy criticism going on within the church. Uh, maybe it's not within each local church, but certainly within the kingdom at large. Hmm. I think there's a lot of necessary correction going on. I think the challenge is uh, what I call same species syndrome is because let's say a white guy gets up behind a pulpit and speaks and turns out to be a narcissist or turns out to be abusive or having a secret affair, then that gets exposed. And then people come to churches where there are white guys who get up to preach, but they are healthy people, but they're painted with the same brush, same species syndrome. So that's where I have a concern. Um, so that's where it's, it's nuanced, right? Because I think, the narcissism should be exposed. I think there is a massively toxic culture of cover-up right now, um, of doubling down against victims. I think it's horrific. But I think what's also true is that there are many people out of the spotlight serving faithfully who have lost trust with their people because of these other people. So I'm not quite sure if that's helpful or if that muddies the waters, but that would be kind of my initial reaction, I think. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. But then it begets another question. If these environments sort of attract narcissistic individuals or people with narcissistic tendencies, how do you filter that? 
is there a way that you can sort of, you know, instead of putting everybody on a polygraph, how do you, how do you sort of recognize early on that this could potentially be a problem and maybe not necessarily not hire the individual, but at least implement some sort of accountability? Well, I think that is the question. So there are, it's pretty difficult to hide narcissism in certain environments. So you're, you're looking for, um, is the person moving toward truth? Um, are they concerned with how others experience them? So in, in our church, you know, I'm the lead pastor. I have the most power in the church, and I think we should all be very concerned about that. But we've set up a culture where anybody can come to me and tell me how they experience me. And, you know, for some people, when they have that conversation, they're just painting me with their own skewed brush. But if I, if I have two or three people who are saying, listen, we experience you this way, it's, it's on me to believe them, right? To believe the truth. So I think narcissists do not want to be self-reflective. In fact, they're incapable of being self-aware. But healthy people actually will move toward blind spot knowledge and work on the negative impact of their actions. Uh, narcissists avoid um, accountability, authority, uh, someone over authority, you know, having authority over them. So you can actually build upfront those structures, and then you can see the behavior of that person when they come against those boundaries. So they're going to push on authority. They're going to deny the negative impact of their actions. And now you kind of know you've got trouble on your hands. You can also look for small, subtle signs like exaggeration. Um, narcissists tend to be deceptive by nature. Um, but, but there's been books written on that, you know, someone like a Chuck DeGroat, uh, a Wade Mullen, uh, Diane Langberg. These are people who have really given their life to studying and helping the church see this. And, and I, I'm really in many ways just parroting what I've learned from them. I've had my own experience working for a narcissist, so it, it was pretty rough. But we've got some good leaders in the church nowadays. Yeah, I, I even think of like the work of Rachel Denhollander, the, the former gymnast who's an attorney who exposed Larry Nassa. Um, in the U.S. gymnastics, she also has done a lot of work in the church, and it's pretty horrific to see when, when these people are uncovering narcissism, how the system is covering it up. Um, that, that's a sign, too, that, that you're in trouble, I think. Can you speak to that a little bit further about the system that would cover it up? What does it look like? Not necessarily that you're going to know what's happening, but are there sort of signs that you can tell when maybe your church board or a staff is covering or overcompensating for a narcissist? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can look for gaslighting. You can look for, um, like, let's talk about Wade Mullen. He has his doctorate in how churches and Christian organizations use impression management tactics to cover over abuse. I mean, it's just horrendous. And Wade has a book that's accessible to anybody. Um, I think the book called Something's Not Right. And he leads you through very systemically how to notice when a system, when a group of people are all secretly agreeing to allow the narcissist to retain power. And a lot of it is because of uh, the, the whole organization is threatened. If the organization is built around the narcissist, then 
the health of the organization is at threat or the viability of the organization is at threat if you take the narcissist out of the picture. You know, right now, they're probably the most downloaded podcast, as, at least of, as we're recording, is the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And it's shocking that that church went from 14,000 to zero in a year because it turned out to be a house of cards built around one narcissist. So, um, so you can see when people's jobs are on the line. Also, it, it takes a, a well-differentiated individual to stand up to a narcissist because you're going to be in for it when you do. Uh, the most recent episode of Rise and Fall of Mars Hill is actually on that very thing. When people stand up to a narcissist, they are kicked out, they're demonized. Um, it, it takes a lot to do it. So, so the system has a vested interest in keeping the narcissist in place. It's pretty horrific. So let's shift gears a little bit to the pastors and leaders who are experiencing criticism. Maybe they have gotten feedback before in their lives, but it's it's becoming a little bit more, especially as you had mentioned with 2020 and, and sort of needing to redefine and rebuild church from scratch. Aside from a good therapist, how do you develop a, a, a system for yourself that sort of receives criticism without being taken out by it? That's uh, a great question. Yeah, it's some of the work I do now is is going around to groups of pastors and actually teaching them this very thing. Uh, I think I think the healthiest thing to do is to get clear on who you are and who you are not. I find it helpful to be aware of my shadow side and aware of my mistakes so that I'm less threatened when people point them out. It's very disarming. I meet with a critic and the critic says, you know, you did this wrong. And I'll be like, yeah, you, you got that right. I sure did. Um, at the same time, I'm aware that, look, I'm a human being. I'm, if, if the premise is that I'll never get it wrong, that's crazy. That's untenable. So I think having a healthy awareness that you're imperfect and resting in that, that, that all God expects out of you is an exactly human-sized person. I think that's really key for, for your own emotional and spiritual health. The, the second step, once you've kind of established that, so what that looks like for me is I'm frequently confessing my mistakes to my staff and my congregation just to build an expectation that we're human-sized. And, of course, I'm not talking about abuse-level mistakes, the, the kinds of secret habits that really should have you step out of ministry. I'm just talking about leadership decisions where you got it wrong, you know, so I think being in the habit of being the mistake maker in chief is really healthy. Um, I think a lot of pastors expect themselves to be superhuman, and I think that's really deadly. And, and then once you've established that, really the next stage is to identify your usual suspect critics. And those are the people that no matter how often you meet, how much insight you give, how reasonable you are, they will never come around. They'll never give you credit. And there's a lot of signs for those people. You can start to notice when you're in a meeting with a usual suspect critic, what they typically do is they'll come with a litany of issues like that's been built up and they'll kind of dump them all on you. And you'll start to feel like, man, I, I should resign. I'm completely incompetent. And as you start to peel back issue by issue, and maybe you're trying to explain to that person, they will keep shifting the target on you. They'll never let you resolve with them. They'll never say, oh, I see. Yeah, okay, that helped. 
you know, you'll start to take one issue and explain it, but as you're getting to the end of it, they'll kind of launch a new topic. That's usually a sign that you're dealing with the usual suspect. Uh, the other one is when they're weaponizing your words against you, they're twisting what you're saying, they're distorting it and spreading it to others. So once you've identified a usual suspect and almost every church has them, the next thing to do is to make sure you never meet with them alone because they generally are looking to dominate you. And so if you have a witness, I, I usually bring an elder or two with me. Um, partly I bring a witness for two reasons. One is to witness what I said so that the elder can give me feedback. If there's something I said or a way I said something that was out of line, but also to protect me that if, if the usual suspect is twisting what I say, then the elders are back up to say, no, nope, that's not what he said. He said this, but also it usually forces the usual suspect to behave better. They are not generally going to bully you around when there's a witness watching. So that would be step two. And then the final step is to just um, die to the need to be understood. So when I'm meeting with a usual suspect, I do not need from them to be understood. I'm not giving them any of my insight. They have lost the right to my insight. So I'm protecting my heart against them. So I think a lot of us, what we do is we, we, we think, well, I'm a decent human being. If you just hear enough from me, you'll think I'm a decent human being too. And we get into this dangerous cycle with these critics of explaining ourselves rather than uh, saying, no, I'm not going to give you more explanation because it, the more words I give you, the bigger stick I'm giving you to hit me with. So that would be the usual suspect critics. Now, these are a fraction of a percentage of your congregation. So like, you know, we have a couple of thousand people at our church. This would be like six people in my church. So I'm not talking about your run-of-the-mill person. I'm talking about the very few that treat you this way. And then the run-of-the-mill person, I, I think you meet with them and you give your insight and you ask them for their insight. You're, you're open. You don't have to be defensive. Somebody can point out your errors and you can agree with them. And it's very disarming. I think it's a much healthier way to be. But our tendency is to get all kind of full of self-pity and say, hey, um, you know, if only you knew how difficult my job was, that kind of stuff. I, I don't think you need to do that. It's so profound, Steve, and, and I really appreciate the insight. To flip it for just a second, I think it's I think it's great for leaders to be able to take this posture, and I think it's important for progress to occur. How does the person bringing the criticism, the feedback, the question, how can their demeanor change so that A, they can be heard, but B, there can actually be uh, movement and, and, and progress in the relationship? It's a really good question. I, I mean... I think if you're coming with criticism, I think just understanding the complexity of what leaders are facing nowadays and expressing that up front. But I would hope that most leaders would agree that they make mistakes and that they don't do it perfectly. So for me, I mean, I've got, I bet I've got 30 to 50 people in my life, maybe even more than that, that I welcome their feedback. Like, if they come, some, some of my best growth as a leader has come from painful feedback and criticism that was right. So I, I don't know that 
that somebody has to couch it in any particular way, I guess I would just ask the critic, you know, are you involved? Are you sacrificing for the mission of the organization? And if you are, I believe you have the right to speak. I believe you absolutely have the right to say what you think because you have skin in the game. Um, so, so I don't know. I, I can't speak for other leaders. I know some people just are naturally very defensive. But if somebody wants to meet with me and I know that they're putting time in, that they're sacrificing, that they care, I, I want to hear what they have to say. Unfiltered, I don't need them to couch it for me, I guess. Yeah. Well, Steve, those are great insights. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Lastly, you know, the church is all over the place on everything, you know, from, from politics to sexuality to, to social justice. The, the topics never really run out on where we're divided, unfortunately. If there was going to be one thing that we could do as the church to move in a more positive direction, to live out John 17 and have more unity, what would a first step, in your opinion, be? Yeah, I love that question. I think unity is much simpler than we think it is. So I would challenge every preacher to pray for a local church in this city by name from the pulpit on a regular basis. Um, so we, we have a regular practice of praying by name for churches in our neighborhood. And I think that's, that was, that's what we call two-minute unity. It just takes less than two minutes, and it says to your congregation, we're all in this together. And we do not uh, filter who we pray for. We pray for conservative churches, progressive churches, um, churches that are affirming of gay marriage, churches that are not affirming of gay marriage. Uh, so that's two-minute unity. I think there's 25-minute unity is then gathering those faith leaders and praying together. Um. And, you know, our passion in our church is, is to find a place of brokenness in your city and serve it together, regardless of your beliefs. So in our city, it's affordable housing. Our churches have led our city in the massive problem of not enough affordable housing. If, if a woman's husband goes to jail for domestic violence and she now has to find work and she's traumatized, she has to leave our city because she can't find a place to live. So we are committed to the churches working together. So what our churches do in our city is we, those of us who have property, we tithe our land uh, for the sake of housing. So our church, we have 18 acres, so almost two acres is going to building affordable housing. Uh, any church can do that. Any church can tithe their land and their ministries. Like if you have a meals ministry, then why don't you give 10% of your meals ministry to social workers in your city. So you're not just delivering meals to your members, but you're delivering meals to under-resourced people in your city. It's the simplest thing. I don't know why more churches don't do this. Uh, and, and then I, I would just say that leaders can, can simply define the, the posture of their church. You know, we are, our, our culture is becoming more judgmental and less accepting. It, it's become kind of ironic that we went through this phase where we tolerate each other and now we're moving into like a cancel culture, right? Um, could, could it be that the church is actually the way it was in the first 300 years after Jesus, that we now become the most welcoming and accepting and diverse in a culture that's becoming more judgmental and more exclusive? I think that's a really fascinating vision that, that the church regains 
its place in culture as the most hospitable place to be. I know that has not been our reputation in the last 20 years, but I think there's an opportunity for us to take back what Jesus called us to be um, as our culture gets more and more judgmental and intolerant of each other. It's powerful, Steve. Thank you. And, and thank you for being a guest on the show. Tell us a little bit about what you have going on and where people can connect with you online if they've got questions or want to follow up. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I've been a, a local church pastor for 25 years. And, and in the next few months, I'm stepping into consulting and coaching full time. So I'm spending more and more of my time now going to not just churches, but any teams and doing team health work. That's really what I mostly am and known for is uh, my book, Managing Leadership Anxiety. It helps leaders get emotionally and spiritually healthy, and then it helps leaders help their teams do the same. So you can find me on social media at Steve Cusswords. Um, my website is also stevecusswords.com. And I do have an online community for people who want to get emotionally and spiritually healthy. Uh, you can find it from stevecusswords.com. Click through to it and learn more about it there. We'll throw it all in the show notes. But again, Steve, thank you so much for giving us your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Joey. It was a real pleasure. And that wraps up Dismantle Podcast for today. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change.